This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. One thing we can be sure of is the negative effects of alcohol on society and the healthcare system. It's just harder to manage and cope with it when we're going through a pandemic. As the alcohol sales ban has been reinstated, the decline in alcohol-related injuries and trauma cases seen in hospitals in South Africa is reversing. Trauma specialists said that during the first two months of lockdown, trauma admissions dropped by 70% at hospitals in Gauteng and the Western Cape. Those declines, according to the South African Medical Research Council, are now being dramatically reversed due to what had been the reinstatement of alcohol sale. Now, alcohol is no doubt a threat to public health. And joining us to unpack this further is Dr. Carolyn Lewis, a medical doctor at Helen Joseph Trauma Unit. Thank you so much, Dr. Lewis, for joining us here on the COVID report. Now, firstly, alcohol was banned in the initial stages of the lockdown. Please take us through the nature of trauma cases you were dealing with during level five and four of the lockdown. Hi, Super Sickly. Thank you so much for having me on joining you today. Um, what I can do is just run through a couple of the stats that we've had since the beginning of the year. So it kind of sets the scene with what we see usually, and then I can chat about how that changed in April and May. Um, so in terms of the trauma cases we tend to see, we usually divide them up into assaults, stabbings, motor vehicle accidents, and pedestrian vehicle accidents. And those make up the majority of what we see. So roughly every month in terms of assaults, we tend to see roughly 400 or so a month. So that's about 100 a week. So January this year, we had 401 assaults. February, 482. February was a really busy month. Um, March, 396. If you look at stabbings, roughly 100 to 150 a month. So January, 98. February, 173. March, 110. And then motor vehicle accidents, roughly 200 or so a month. So January 196, February 195, and March 161. And then pedestrian vehicle accidents. So that would be people who are, for instance, out for a walk and then um, hit by a car, um, a bus. Um, we usually average about 100 a month of those. So January 85, February 109, March 91. And then when the alcohol ban was put in place towards the end of March, and it affected our stats for April, we saw a massive decline in the numbers that we were seeing. So assaults went from roughly 400 a month down to 147 in April. Stabbings down from about 100 to 150 a month down to 61 in April. And then motor vehicle accidents down from about 200 a month down to 42. And pedestrian vehicle accidents down from about 100 a month down to 23 in April. Um, the motor vehicle accidents and pedestrian vehicle accidents are probably a combination of the alcohol ban um, and the fact that people were asked to stay at home. So obviously then there are less vehicles out and about on the road. But that's a significant decrease in the amount of trauma that we were seeing throughout April and that was the same in May as well. Interesting stuff, Doctor. Now, what of the month of June when alcohol sales were permitted again? On average, how many alcohol-related injuries were there in a day and did you notice a sharp change in the trends for the month of June compared to the other months that you've just covered? So that's a really interesting question because we didn't think we would see such a significant increase in June um, because it was quite a significant restriction on alcohol still placed in June. Alcohol was only sold from Mondays to Thursdays 
So we didn't think we'd see such a big rebound, and we did. So June, we were back up to 400 assaults, stabbings back up to 70, motor vehicle accidents back up to 131, and pedestrian vehicle accidents back up to 76 for the month of June. So a massive increase from what we were seeing April and May, and that echoed what we were seeing on the floor in the emergency department Literally, the moment that alcohol was announced that it could be sold again, we saw a significant increase in the number of patients that were coming in. And the challenge with that is that that takes up um, bed space in our emergency department. It uses up resources in terms of x-rays, CT scans, um, and human resources. So it's, it puts a major strain on the doctors and nurses who are treating those patients. Um, because they're labor-intensive to manage because they're difficult and complicated patients. Definitely putting a strain and requiring more resources. Now, did the hospital have capacity of staff to attend to all the patients, including the COVID-19 patients? And how has that changed now that you aren't receiving as many alcohol-related trauma cases? Has the number of alcohol-related trauma cases gone down again after immediate effect ban? Okay, so it sounds like um, two aspects there. Do we have capacity in terms of bed space and human resources to deal with the combination of trauma and COVID cases? Um, and I think the short answer to that is no. Um, what the hospital has done since they declared a national pandemic and since we began preparing was to try and reshuffle and reorganize the hospital so that we could free up underutilized beds and then purpose them for COVID patients. And we've reshuffled our department so that we can take staff from areas that are less busy and redeploy them to COVID response. Um, so we have moved staffing around. We have employed more staff. But the challenge is that with the increased volume that we're seeing with COVID, I think that would put a strain on any system, no matter how well you prepare for it. Um, with the increase in June of both trauma and COVID, that put a major strain on our department. And we found that we struggled in terms of bed space and we struggled in terms of seeing patients quickly and efficiently just because there aren't always enough staff available. Now, what we'll do is we'll triage patients to make sure that the ones that are most sick and most severe, regardless of whether or not they're trauma or COVID patients, we will see as quickly as possible because we want to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and that means looking after the sickest people first. But if you came into the hospital with something less urgent, you're not going to be seen quickly and efficiently like we would want to do, just because our hands are tied trying to take care of the really sick patients. And then we've got the added challenge with that, that our doctors and nurses are not immune to COVID either. So we've had a lot of staff who've actually been off sick with COVID taking two weeks, and that's just changed to 10 days at home recovering. So we've got an increased influx of patients coming in and a decreased amount of staff trying to manage those patients. Um, so that's been a major, major challenge. And then with the ban that's just been put in place on alcohol again, we've seen a massive decrease again in the numbers. Um, so to run you through last week, assaults have been down to 36 last week. So if we're roughly seeing a uh, 400 a month, that's 100 a week, we're down to 36. Um, stabbings down from 100 a month, so that's about 25 a week, down to 14. 
motor vehicle accidents from 200 a month. So that's about 50 a week. We were down to 20 last week. And pedestrian vehicle accidents down from 100 a month, which is about 25 a week, down to seven last week. So it means that then we are spending less time dealing with trauma patients and we can focus our energies more on COVID patients, um, which is a great help for us. It means that then we've got more resources to use to try and give the best possible care to the patients coming in with respiratory illnesses, most of whom are COVID. So there appears to be a tangible link between the restriction of access to alcohol and the number of people who walk into or would walk into health, Helen Joseph in search of trauma treatment. Now, when it comes to the people who do um, come to a hospital or report to an emergency unit with um, injuries um, from, like you said, stabbings, car accidents and the like, are all of those patients who report to emergency units tested for COVID-19 while being treated for other injuries? Um, so not necessarily, no. We will tend to find that patients that present to the hospital with any type of respiratory illness, we will test for COVID-19. We've got a really high index of suspicion if someone presents and they've got respiratory symptoms that are suspicious. If someone was to come into hospital um, with something completely unrelated, so a typical trauma case, then we'll take it on a case-by-case basis because it's quite possible to have trauma and have COVID. And we are seeing cases of that. But usually that'll mean taking a little bit more information from the patient, asking, do they have any respiratory symptoms? Typically we'll do an x-ray as part of a trauma screen. So if someone comes in with trauma, we'll often do an x-ray as part of that workup. And then if we see that there's significant findings on the x-ray suggestive of COVID, we will then test. So we wouldn't routinely test every single trauma case, but any trauma case that has um, signs or symptoms that are suspicious of COVID, we would definitely test, yes. Now, unpacking further, what are some of the side effects of excessive alcohol intake on the human body? And what is the response of the coronavirus in an intoxicated body, if there is any? That's a really interesting question. And as far as I know, there hasn't been an awful lot of research into that. So that's going to be a difficult one to answer in terms of a purely medical answer. I could maybe give you more of a social answer to it. And it would be that there's been a lot of studies looking at the impact of alcohol on social behavior. Um, and with increased alcohol intake, there's concern that that would lower your inhibitions. So you would be more likely to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily do. So if, for instance, you are usually a responsible person who would socially distance, stay away from large gatherings, wear a face mask, but you have now drunk a lot of alcohol and potentially are intoxicated, the concern is that for some people that might lower your inhibitions and make you more likely to partake in behavior that maybe puts you more at risk of contracting COVID. So you might be more inclined to be out and about, um, engaged in social gatherings, maybe not wearing a face mask. So I can't speak to how alcohol affects COVID in terms of the disease process, but I think there is a good chance that increased alcohol intake would make you more susceptible to being exposed to COVID. And that obviously then would potentially increase the numbers and the volumes of COVID patients that we would end up seeing in the hospital. Now, Dr. Lewis, the topic of alcohol being banned has been subject to countless debates 
on a social standpoint, on a political standpoint. But I'm more curious as to the healthcare workers' standpoint, which I think you'd be best positioned to speak from. Is the ban of alcohol a solution to the many pleas of healthcare workers in the suffering healthcare system? And if it isn't, what do you think the solution is? Um, that's a difficult one because I think you could look at a short-term solution and a long-term solution. And I think our challenge is that at the moment we've got a massive surge of COVID patients coming in and we're trying to free up as many resources as possible. And at the moment we're looking for a short-term solution just to get through the peak that we're expecting over the next couple of months. In which case, from what we can see physically working in the hospitals, the fact that there is an alcohol ban in place has definitely cut down on trauma numbers. It's freed up resources. We are able to focus on COVID and give it our best shot at treating those patients. But that's a short-term solution. And I think you're asking, is this a viable, feasible, long-term solution? I'm not convinced that it is. Um, because if you look at medical care in isolation, and you don't look at anything else. All you look at is the volume of patients and providing the best possible medical care. Not having any alcohol would be fantastic for hospitals, doctors, and nurses around the world. It would definitely cut down on the amount of trauma that we have to deal with. But medicine doesn't exist in isolation, and you need to look at the social and economic aspects that tie in with that. And that's why I think that although this is doing the job at the moment as a short-term answer just to get us through the peak, I don't think it's going to be viable or sustainable as a long-term solution. And I'm not quite sure what that long-term solution is. What we are seeing, and I think what this has highlighted, is that in South Africa, I think we have an excessive use of alcohol, and that really pushes up our trauma numbers in the hospitals. And do we need to look at a more responsible usage of alcohol? Maybe. But I think that that's going to be a longer-term solution and not something that's going to be easy to implement right here, right now. So in the midst of it all, Dr. Lewis, President Ramaphosa emphasized that the country still faces a serious shortage of more than 12,000 healthcare workers, mostly nurses, doctors, and physiotherapists. Do you think if it wasn't the case, we would have less COVID-19 mortalities as we would have had enough staff on duty to attend to all COVID-19 positive patients? And is this affecting the way we're treating our people? I think, I think if you have more staff, you will always be able to provide a higher standard of care. So it sounds like the question you're asking is, could we have done more? And are we doing enough? And those are difficult questions to answer because could we have done more if we had more staff available? Potentially, yes. Have we done enough, though? That's a difficult question, and I think we're only going to know the answer to that once the entire pandemic has settled down and we look at our total numbers of COVID patients, we look at our total deaths in the country, and we compare ourselves to other countries. Um, because although you can always do better, and any country could do better if they had more resources, if they had more staffing, if they had more equipment, have you done the best possible that you could do with the resources you had available? That I think we're only going to have the answer to once all of this has settled 
and we know the final numbers and we know the final outcomes. So I don't think we have the answer to that yet. Dr. Lewis, I think the idea that's been romanticized here across the country is that the lockdown at level five was the highest point of protection the country could place between itself and the spread of this virus. But once the ban on alcohol was lifted and the cases and the case numbers surged up, everyone immediately blamed the surging uh, number of cases to the reinstating of alcohol or the lifting of the alcohol ban. In your opinion, are there any of the other lockdown restrictions that have been eased that you feel contribute to the rising number of cases? Again, I'm not convinced that the lifting of the ban on alcohol was directly responsible for the increased number of cases that we've had. I think definitely having people who are drinking more and potentially intoxicated is going to increase their exposure. It is going to increase spread, but that's not something in isolation. There were a lot of changes as we changed our lockdown from level four to level three with a lot more movement of people. Um, And I'm not convinced that alcohol in isolation was responsible for that. I think any time that you have people um, gathering and that obviously is going to happen in a workplace um, situation that you're going to have more spread of this virus. And that's a really difficult one to try and balance between doing the best possible from a medical perspective and a healthcare perspective, but balancing that out with people's jobs and employment and an economy. Um, So I'm not, although we've seen a dramatic increase in alcohol, increase in trauma cases as alcohol was unbanned, and a dramatic decrease again in trauma cases as alcohol was banned, um, that I think that there's a direct correlation between. But we have now had alcohol banned for the last week and a half, and we're still seeing an increase of COVID cases. So I think there's a correlation between alcohol and trauma. I don't think that there's a direct causative correlation between alcohol and COVID cases. Now, I think a very important question to ask is how are the frontline workers doing? How, is you, how are you as a medical staff member caring for your mental health during this overwhelming period and for the mental health of your staff? Also adding on the frustration that many South Africans refuse to obey lockdown regulations. It's a challenge. Um, I think that I'm very lucky. I work at Helen Jones Hospital I work in the emergency department. I'm one of three consultants and we have an absolutely fantastic team. Our team are motivated, hardworking and dedicated. Um, They are doing the absolute best that they can to try and manage patients. But probably about 20% of our staff have been off themselves with COVID over the last month to six weeks, myself included. Um, And that does take a toll we've all been very fortunate that we've all had very mild cases and most of us are now back at work again. But that does take a mental strain because with most of the other illnesses that we treat, um, we, are, we are the medical staff and we're treating patients and we're not personally at risk from what our patients come in with. And I think for many of us, this is the first time that we've been exposed to a very infectious disease that has the potential to be really serious and could affect us personally. And it's the first time that we've seen our colleagues and ourselves in some instances become sick. Um, And that has taken a strain on our team. I think what has been really heartening is seeing our colleagues 
coming back after recovering from COVID. And I think that that's a really important thing in terms of team morale to realize that although we are frontline workers, although we are exposed, although we ourselves are getting sick, we are recovering and able to come back and continue to provide service to our patients. So if I was to sum up, I would say that we are without a doubt taking strain. This is hard work um, and it's prolonged hard work. Um, you know, if we have a really busy, for instance, trauma weekend, and I'm thinking maybe a New Year's Eve, where we have an excessive burden of patients coming in, it's a sprint. We are exceptionally busy, but for a short period of time, and we are not personally at risk. This feels more like a marathon, where we've been treating patients for months and months, and we are personally at risk as well. So we're taking strain, but we are managing, we are keen, motivated, and we're willing to continue. Finally, from me, Dr. Lewis, with all the information at the disposal of the public about this virus and the statistics of positive cases continuing to soar, many people remain committed to being relaxed and not taking this virus as seriously as they should. What can you say to citizens as a way to encourage them to adhere to the lockdown regulations and continue to do their part in our continued fight against this pandemic? I think for a lot of people personally, it's not something that's real. Um, I think when you have a look on the TV and you listen to the media and you see the numbers, often it's something that's out there, but doesn't affect you personally. And I think what we've realized in the hospital, seeing our colleagues and our friends becoming sick and thankfully recovering, but we've realized that this is not something that's out there. It's something that's affecting us personally and it's affecting all walks of life. Um, so it's not, it's not only affecting some people, it literally is affecting everyone. And seeing people who come into the hospital as patients who are sick um, makes you realize that this virus and this disease process can be potentially really, really serious and severe. I think part of the challenge is that it's been going on for so long. To be honest, we're tired of hearing about it. Um, I'm, I'm in agreement with many people that we just want this to be over. But it doesn't mean that this is a time to relax and to stop our social distancing, stop wearing masks, stop using hand sanitizer or washing your hands. It's as important now as it was right at the beginning. But at the beginning in March, I think that there was more of a novelty aspect to this and we weren't tired of hearing about it. So we were more willing to adhere to those regulations. I think now with the massive numbers that we're seeing, it's more important than ever. Um, but we need to realize that it's something that we need to take personal responsibility for and do our part to try and decrease the spread. Now, Dr. Lewis, forgive me for taking you back, but I'd like to speak more on your own COVID-19 experience as a doctor. We've covered at length what citizens, ordinary citizens should do in case they do um, find themselves with COVID. But what's the protocol for a frontline worker who may suspect they have COVID-19? And more specifically, you mentioned that many of your own staff members and yourself had mild symptoms. But what does this mean? Does it mean that you didn't have to do the second test? Is the second test still required to confirm you negative? So if you don't mind just walking us through the COVID-19 process for a frontline worker. Okay, so for our team, what we ask for our team is to, as they come into work every day, report their symptoms and let us know if they have any respiratory symptoms. With the idea that we want to pick up nice and early if someone potentially has COVID-19, because this presents slightly differently for different people. Um, obviously the patients we see coming in are often severe, 
but the people that don't come to hospital are often quite mild. So the vast majority of our team have had typical cold and flu-like symptoms. So a sore throat, runny nose, maybe fevers, maybe muscle aches and pains. A lot of them, interestingly, have had a lack of smell. Um, and that's really common with COVID-19. So those are the more milder type of symptoms. And the moment that anyone has those symptoms, we are, they get tested. I think if you are not an essential worker, then there's no real necessity to get tested. You could assume that you have COVID and you could self-isolate at home for 10 days. Um, but for essential workers, we obviously want them working if they don't have COVID. So we want to test so that we can differentiate, does this person have COVID or not? So for all of our staff, we would ask that they get tested immediately if they have any respiratory symptoms. And it would be their choice whether we tested them in our hospital or whether they chose to go to a private facility for testing. Um, and they would then remain off work until they've got their swab results back. So um, the swab results, if those are then positive, you would then self-isolate at home for 10 days from your first symptom. Or if you were really severe and you were admitted into hospital and you were, for instance, on oxygen, your 10 days would count from when you are stable and when you are off oxygen. So that's interesting. That's a recent change over the last week. We used to have to self-isolate for 14 days and the government has taken the guidance from the World Health Organization and decreased that down to 10 days. The thinking is that after roughly seven to eight days, you probably aren't infectious anymore. So they've given a bit of a safety net and they've said um, 10 days in total. And after that, you are then fit to come back to work. You don't need a second test. And the reason for that is that that second test can often remain positive for up to six weeks. And that doesn't mean that you are still infectious. It picks up the virus particles, but not necessarily a marker of whether or not you could spread that. So that second test has fallen away, which I think is useful for our testing facilities so that we're not overburdening them. We obviously want to have as short a turnaround time to get results on tests as possible. So we need to test wisely. And that means testing the people that we want to diagnose the illness and not testing at the end of their illness. So um, for myself, I was off work for 14 days. The regulations hadn't changed and blue like symptoms for the first week. And for the second week, I actually felt quite well. Um, and I think most of our team have been in that really fortunate position um, where we've all had quite mild symptoms and we've all then been back at work on day 14. And now that's changed. Now you would be back at work on day, on day 10 without the need for a follow-up test. A very detailed experience. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And just two last questions before I let you go. Have you been experiencing a lot of false positives? Because we've heard that this is an issue within the country, but in your trauma unit, when you're testing, is this something that you're seeing very often? Um, no, not at all. We tend to test people with symptoms. And if their test is positive, we are happy that that is a positive test. What we are seeing is false negatives. So people who have typical signs and symptoms of COVID, and we will do a swab test and that test comes back negative, but we are still suspicious and we would test them again a day or two later and that subsequently comes back positive. And the false negative rate has been reported as being quite high. Um, I've seen reports of up to a 20 to 30% false negative rate, which means that if your index of suspicion is high, 
you don't want to rely on a negative test to say, this patient certainly doesn't have COVID. If you are worried, you would repeat that test um, in the hope that two tests would be better than one if your first one was negative and you're worried that this is a false negative. But false positive tests, we're not seeing. We're testing people who are symptomatic um, and the fact that that's confirmed, our, our clinical suspicion is confirmed with the test, means that we're happy that this is then a positive case. And lastly, Dr. Lewis, when the numbers were released last night by Dr. Zwelim Kize, it marked the second day of a reduction in the number of positive cases we are seeing in the country. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, our numbers currently sit at somewhere in 8,000. But do you think this is an end of a peak or is this just the luck of two days? Are we expecting to see a rise again? I'm not sure. Um, we are expecting the peak in Gauteng to still be at peak throughout July and August, at least. Um, you know, we're optimistically hoping that it will start to settle come September, but we're not expecting to see a decline yet. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe it's a good sign, but I would be really surprised if it is because it's not what we're anticipating. So I think time will tell. And it will be very interesting to see whether or not there is a steady decline. But if it is, it will be a lot quicker than we're anticipating. We've just been joined by Dr. Carolyn Lewis here on The COVID Report, a medical doctor at the Helen Joseph Trauma Unit, giving us insight into the ways in which the lifting and further reinstatement of the alcohol ban changed the landscape on the front line of this fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or streams via www.varfm.co.za.